So we are past the halfway point to Easter. With spring break behind us, the weather warming up, and uh, baseball getting started, all signs are pointing to the resurrection. So if you have given up something you love for Lent, hang in there. You're more than halfway done. Uh, If you've taken on some spiritual discipline that you're getting tired of, hang in there. You're more than halfway done. At this more than halfway point, we are in the fourth week of our sermon series, An Extraordinary Life, A Lenten Journey with Jesus. Throughout the season of preparation for Easter, we're reading the story of Christ's life and ministry as told by the Gospel of Luke, which is the the recommended lectionary gospel for this year. And every week, we're focusing on a different aspect of his ministry, actually tracking through the gospel in chronological order. So in the first three weeks of this series, we've talked about uh, the, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness before his ministry began. We've talked about his first sermon in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. We've spent last week talking about Jesus' healing ministry. All those sermons are on the website if you missed any of them and would like to get caught up. Today, we are focusing on his teaching ministry. Now, it may or may not surprise you that I have always loved school always. I'm talking about from kindergarten through college, through my Navy years, uh, through my last class in seminary. That's a total of 24 years of education in all by the time it was all said and done. It was an extremely rare occasion that I did not complete all the assignments on time, do all the reading, do all the projects. Uh, In fact, I have from time to time, most often by my wife, been accused of being a bit of a teacher's pet. Uh, But I'm fine with that because I love school. And one of the most colorful teachers I ever had was in seventh grade at Poolsville Junior High in Maryland. Mr. Reichenbaugh uh, taught social studies, and he was uh, one of those teachers whose memory remains vivid almost 40 years later. I'm sure we all have those kinds of teachers uh, who just kind of stay with us. I looked him up this week. Uh, I was bummed to discover that he died in October of 2020, but this yearbook picture is exactly how I remember him. Mr. Reichenbaugh was a Vietnam vet, having served in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, and he looked and occasionally acted every bit the part of a crusty war veteran and drill sergeant. Suffice it to say, uh, he did not put up with any foolishness from us seventh grade boys. And he was the kind of teacher who would say, when some kid in class unexpectedly got an answer correct, that even a blind squirrel gets a nut every once in a while. (laughs) First time I ever heard that phrase was from Mr. Reichenbaugh. He said it in jest. Stephanie's horrified. He was kidding. And I distinctly remember uh, once after a test, he was was pretty mad at how poorly the class had done. So he kind of stormed in to to the classroom And he started class by saying, I have never had a class bomb a test like this. It is obvious that you didn't take it seriously enough. And then he looked directly at me. (laughs) And I froze for a minute. I thought, wait, I studied for that test a lot. I thought I did great on that test. And then to my great relief, he growled, except for you, Dowd, you got 100. (laughs) You can wait in the room next door while I'm talking to the class. And so I went next door, and I could hear him fussing at my classmates uh, rather passionately for like 10 minutes. And then he came and got me, and I went back into the classroom. And I can tell you that I may have been the teacher's pet, but I was not the most popular kid in class that day. (laughs) And one day, Mr. Reichenbaugh was giving uh, giving us a, a pretty stout term paper assignment. 
and we were all kind of grumbling about it. Uh, and he could tell that we needed some encouragement, and he said, listen, I know this seems hard, uh, but let me tell you what my dearly departed grandmother used to say to cheer me up when I was having a tough time. She used to say, Tommy, nothing difficult is ever easy. <laughs> and we're like, hmm. That was about as warm and fuzzy as Mr. Reichenbaugh ever got. <laughs> and I learned a lot from that man. Yes, about social studies, uh, but more so how to act and how to prepare. And this week when I read the comments on the announcement about his death, uh, it was clear that I was not the only one who appreciated him. I've been using his grandmother's phrase for 40 years now. My own kids have heard it a time or two. Nothing difficult is ever easy. <clears throat> Great teachers have a way of getting our attention, uh, sometimes in dramatic and oftentimes in memorable ways. Now, Mr. Reichenbaugh does not remind me of Jesus <laughs> or vice versa. I'm not saying that. But when I read our passage for this morning, I, I think about the encouraging words of Mr. Reichenbaugh's dearly departed grandmother that nothing difficult is ever easy because that is certainly true with some aspects of Christian discipleship as we will read today. So uh, this is Luke chapter 6. It's a little bit of a longer reading, so I'm going to break it up into three parts. This is going to be verses 17 through 26. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Luke. <clears throat> Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, great teachers are not afraid to challenge us to be better than we otherwise would be. Great teachers are not afraid to be a little confrontational from time to time. And I, I think some of that is what's going on in our passage for today. So uh, to help us interpret the reading, we need to, to give a little background information. Um, some of you have heard me say that scholars believe that Mark was the earliest gospel to have been written and that both Matthew and Luke had Mark's gospel in front of them uh, when they wrote their accounts of Christ's life. Both Matthew and Luke use Mark's narrative as the structure for their own accounts. 
John does something entirely different, but that's a sermon for another day. It also seems clear that Matthew and Luke uh, shared a, a second source of material, a hypothetical source that is lost to history because there's a significant portion of Matthew and Luke that's strikingly similar, but that does not appear in Mark. And our reading for today comes from this shared hypothetical source. We are reading Luke's version of what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And what scholars do when they're um, comparing similar material that's shared among different Gospels is to compare and contrast how uh, each author presents the material because it tells us something about the particular theological emphases of that particular Gospel author. Now Jesus is the original source, of course. But the differences in the ways that, that gospel authors present his life and ministry give us some insight into what each gospel author wanted to highlight, what they thought was most important for their congregations to focus on. For example, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is four times as long as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. That's partly because Luke moves some of that material to other places in his gospel, and it's partly because uh, in Matthew, um, Jesus offers interpretations of his teaching within the sermon, which means that either Matthew or Luke added those, either Matthew added those interpretations or Luke took them out. One of the two things has to be true. Whichever is the case, the result is that the Sermon on the Plain is the crisper narrative. It's more terse, uh, it's more emotionally intense, and I would argue it comes across as more confrontational than Matthew's version of this sermon, and not just because it's shorter. In the verses we just read, uh, whereas Matthew gives us nine blessings, more commonly known as the Beatitudes, I'm sure you've heard the Beatitudes before, um, in Luke there are four blessings combined with four woes, or not exactly curses, but not exactly blessings. And they're set in parallel, contrasting the poor and the rich, uh, the hungry and the full, the mournful and the happy, the rejected and the accepted. And all of these blessings and woes are directed to you, <laughs> as opposed to Jesus using the third person like he does in Matthew. So instead of blessed are the poor in spirit, he, we hear blessed are you who are poor. And these blessings and woes reflect a consistent theme in Luke that God cares deeply about those who are on the margins, those who are on the outside, those who are without power or status or wealth. That point comes through in Luke over and over again, so of course it comes through especially in this most important teaching. But that does not mean that God does not care about or God does not love everyone else. The rest of the gospel makes clear that the good news is for everyone, including those with power and status and wealth. It just means that we should care about those whom God cares about. It means that our perspective should be God's perspective. And that's a point that continues through the rest of the sermon. So this is uh, now chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Listen again, friends, for God's word. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. If you're at all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount uh, from Matthew's Gospel, uh, you'll recognize the words we just read. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, preached on the Sermon on the Mount more than any other subject. And there are plenty of Christian theologians who believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the most essential of Christ's teaching, and I tend to agree. The way Luke tells it, the Sermon on the Plain is kind of the Sermon on the Mount on steroids because it packs the same high expectation teaching into a quarter of the verses. It's like this concentrated version of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a Japanese proverb, better than a thousand days of diligent study is one day with a great teacher. I think that's true. And I can only imagine what the disciples must have thought when Jesus wrapped up the sermon on the plain. There's an incredible amount of teaching packed into just 30 verses, as it appears in our Bibles, even the 10 that we just read. Now, it doesn't come through in translation, but this, su- this section begins with Jesus speaking in the third person plural. So he's saying, uh, y'all need to love your enemies, and y'all need to, to bless those who curse you. And all of us knows how this goes, right? Uh, When you're listening to a teacher or a preacher who's saying challenging things, uh, it's easy enough to avoid eye contact, right? (laughs) It's easy enough to think, yeah, y'all do need to love your enemies. Yeah, y'all do need to bless those who curse you. But the, the Greek then switches to the second person singular, which means that Jesus is looking at some poor soul directly. I think of that time when Mr. Reichenbaugh looked directly at me when he was fussing at us about that test. I remember how that feels 40 years later. So imagine Jesus looking and saying, you, yeah, you, turn the other cheek. You specifically, turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who begs from you. Can you imagine Jesus looking you in the eye and giving you this direct command. I, I mean, if he was looking at me and saying, yeah, you, Chris, don't, don't judge. We're getting to that. You, Chris, love your enemies. I'm like, Chris who? <laughs> this section includes the golden rule. It includes a command to love everyone, even the bad ones. It includes a command to offer almost unreasonable generosity and to show mercy like the kind of mercy that God 
shows us. In other words, Jesus is teaching us that when it comes to our relationships with others, not just our people, (laughs) not just our favorite people, not just the people uh, we love, not just the ones who are easy to love, when it comes to our relationships with every other human being, we should strive to imitate God and the way God treats us, which means offering mercy and grace and kindness and patience and generosity and love, even when we don't want to. Your reward will be great, Jesus says, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Whew. <laughs> That's a really high bar. Great teachers have a way of getting our attention that way. Great teachers have a way of, of pushing us to be better than we otherwise would be. And as it turns out, he is not quite finished. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. And then he told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take the speck out of your eye. When, you're, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. No tree, no good tree, bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose, the river burst against the house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. Better than a thousand days of diligent study is one day with a great teacher. Uh, In this incredibly challenging teaching, the teaching that challenges me more than anything else Jesus says, the greatest teacher of all time is telling us to, to imitate God's example. And then there's this incredible promise that's buried in there, and sometimes we can get overwhelmed by all these high expectation commandments and we can miss it. He says, everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. And what it takes to be fully qualified is to put our faith in Christ. Because <laughs> when we do that, the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. 
And the Holy Spirit can do for us what we can't do for ourselves if we allow ourselves to be transformed. Everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. One of my years of education was spent learning how to be a, a supply officer in the Navy. And uh, after Supply Corps school, uh, before reporting to my ship, which was a destroyer, I had to graduate from firefighter school in Philadelphia. Funny story, my mom texted me after the first service and said, I'm glad you never told me about this school you had to go to. <laughs> You'll find out why. We all had to go to this school because every junior officer uh, on a destroyer is also call, um, expected to be a fire locker leader, which is like a, an emergency station when the ship is at battle stations. Uh, fire school is three weeks of learning how to lead your team in responding to all the things that can go wrong when a ship is under attack, and um, there are some catastrophic things that can go wrong when a ship is under attack. We had to, to fight training fires in full fire gear at ridiculously hot temperatures, so a team of us had to descend into this steel box that I mean I don't even remember how hot it was but it was very very hot and put the fire out and then um, we had to learn about chemical warfare and we had to to take off our gas masks in a chamber filled with tear gas to prove to ourselves that the gas masks worked I kept trying to tell them I'll take your word for it I trust that the gas masks worked but that's not the way it goes we had to carry our buddies up and down ladders to simulate uh, real life emergencies it was a lot it's pretty, it's pretty high-pressure school, but it has to be because the stakes are very high. And the way that they described fire school was <clears throat> with an appropriate metaphor. I'm sure you've heard it before. They called it drinking from a fire hose. Buckle up, kids. You're going to be drinking from a fire hose from three, for three weeks. And the instructors uh, took their work deadly seriously because what we were learning was truly a matter of life and death, and they were very effective in a very short amount of time at teaching us the essentials of literally keeping a ship afloat during an emergency. While it may not be exactly life and death, Luke's sermon on the plane sure feels like a drink through the fire hose lesson in Christian spirituality and the Christian life in general, and he just hits us with it real quickly, one right after the other. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who asks. Be merciful. Don't judge. Forgive. Stop worrying about the shortcomings of others and worry about keeping your own side of the street clean. Live lives that bear fruit. I mean, that it sure seems like a lot <laughs> to pack into those 30 verses. In the words of Mr. Reichenbaugh, words that I continue to quote 40 years later, nothing difficult is ever easy. But friends, part of what made and continues to make Jesus' life so extraordinary is the power of his teaching. Teaching that, that challenges us and teaching that transforms us. Teaching that empowers us to live fruitful, faithful lives. Thanks be to God that he had enough faith in us to promise that we can indeed be like the teacher. Amen.